Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's so good to see so many of you here this morning. Uh, how many of you have already opened a few presents today? Anybody? Anybody open some presents? Yes, a few. Are the rest of you on the naughty list? Did you get no presents? Are we doing that later? Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, I know that at Christmas we, um, oh, just to get it out of the way, I am wearing my slippers today. That was as much pajama as our elders, I think, would allow. Uh, anyway, so we are glad to be here. I did have to wear shoes with traction to get across the outflow, uh, ice flow that we're calling our parking lot uh, outside. Uh, I love the theory here in Colorado Springs that we, we don't put salt or anything like that out because the sun will melt the snow and ice immediately. Well, nobody told the snow and ice that this week uh, at all, but hopefully we'll see that continue to disappear here in the coming hours. Uh, but let's think about your very favorite Christmas present ever. Now, I don't mean the most memorable Christmas present. Uh, for me, probably one of the most memorable Christmas presents that my parents ever gave was they gave me and my older brother boxing gloves one Christmas. <laughs> now, I know their thinking was, well, they fight all the time anyway. At least we'll make it somewhat safer by giving them boxing gloves. But what they didn't realize is this is endorsing punching each other in the face, which, of course, is exactly what happened. So by the end of Christmas afternoon, I had a black eye. The boxing gloves were hidden somewhere in the attic only to be found later on in middle school, in which case I got another black eye. Uh, but that's, the, you know, being, being the second son is such a joy. But that's not my favorite Christmas present. I, I do like to ask people this time of year, what is their very favorite Christmas present? And for me, it was the Evil Knievel stunt set. Now, uh, I know that that dates me a little bit. Anybody here remember... You know, the evil Knievel, I know you're saying you shouldn't say evil in the middle of church, but, I, I, you know, it wasn't because he was a particularly bad person, even though he may or may not have been. I'm not going to make a comment about that. But what he did is he dressed up in a red, white, and blue all-American jumpsuit, and he rode his Harley-Davidson motorcycle in the most dangerous situations he could possibly imagine. Uh, part of his whole shtick time and uh, so whenever he came on ABC's Wide World of Sports, I was watching because Evil Knievel could die at any moment. And that just made for good television, right? And so back in that day to encourage such reckless behavior, uh, I think it was the Mattel or the Hasbro company came out with the Evil Knievel action figure stunt set. And so Evil Knievel was there, you know, action figure and all, red, white, and blue jumpsuit, and he had a little motorcycle, and it had a winding element to it. And so you would put the motorcycle into the winding element, and you would wind it as fast as you could, and that thing would take off. And you could jump stairs, you could jump your siblings, you could jump the dog, you could jump anything with the Evil Knievel sunset. And I will be honest, it was practically indestructible. I jumped that thing over everything for many, many months. Now, they did eventually recall it because it turns out that all the torque that was being created to jump the stairs, the dogs, and your siblings, turned out that if long hair got in it, it would just rip it out. Uh, so, 
no more evil can evil sunset. But the greatest toy, the greatest gift that I ever received at Christmas. But of course today, on Christmas Day, we remember not those extraordinary toys that we played with for a while, but we remember the gift of Christmas. Leah's already read our story in Matthew chapter 2, and I know our temptation. Our temptation is to make this about the Magi or the wise men, or to make it about Herod, uh, or to even make it about the star. But at the end of the day, Matthew put this account in his gospel because he wanted to tell us about Jesus. He wanted to tell us what a tremendous gift that it was. As a matter of fact, here is Matthew's Christmas account, the account of this morning. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. There you go. That's Matthew's birth narrative. Jesus was born. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the days of King Herod. But this story is all about the nature of of the gift, Jesus. You see, he is the center of the story. He is what is creating all of the action in this account. But of course, we do need to talk about the characters and the things that are going on. First of all, before I really dig into the text and talk about the responses to this gift that is Jesus, let me just cover a few things for those of you who are more academically in mind. Let's cover what is the star. What is the star? There are many theories about this. Some people say that Jupiter and Saturn aligned in such a perfect way that it created a very bright light and that this is what happened and this explains a star. Other people suggest that it was a comet. It is even suggested, depending on which book you read, that it could have been Halley's Comet. I don't know the math on that. Uh, but uh, here's what I think it is. I believe that the star is a manifestation of what the Bible calls the Shekinah glory of God. I just love saying that word, doesn't it? If you can use the word Shekinah, at some point during the rest of Christmas Day, you'll probably get some extra candy uh, stuck in your stocking. The Shekinah glory we see most manifest back in the Old Testament when God was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. He led them uh, during the day by a pillar of smoke, but at night by a pillar of fire. And that was the imminence or uh, the overflow of God's glory, the Shekinah glory of God. Now, why do I specifically, the star guided the wise men or the magi? It guided them to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Now, I know that uh, many of you uh, have been to Israel, you've been to these areas, but for those who are like myself and you have not gone, just for a little geography, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are between four and six miles apart from one another, depending on where you start and where you finish. They're very close. And for those of you who know anything about triangulating a star, uh, there would be no difference at all between five or six miles of distance. The same star would lead you basically into the same area. So for a star to lead directly to where the child was, where this gift of Christmas was lying, it had to be something that was pretty specific. And so I think the Shekinah glory is a good thing. So there you go, academic matter number one. Academic matter number two, and then we're going to get into the main part of this message. 
I know, you're like, really this much preamble with my infant children sitting here in the room with me. Uh, It's okay. You know, Greg kept it very short on the music, so I figured I'm just going to take... I'm just going to take more time because we don't want you to feel like you came all the way out on Christmas morning for a 30-minute service. So uh, we are going to make sure it's more than that. Secondly, who were the Magi? Uh, Well, truthfully, we don't know 100%. We know they came from the East, but of course, the East is a pretty big area, uh, you know, depending on your perspective. And so, uh, most likely, they came from somewhere around modern Iran or Iraq. Uh, and so, these magi or wise men came from there. But who were magi? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see them mentioned a few times in the book of Daniel. In truth, Daniel and his buddies, who were uh, renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is just fun to say, Uh, they were essentially trained to be magi. Magi were an interesting cross between a scientist and an astrologer. And so they were somewhere in between those two things. As a matter of fact, the word magician comes from this word magi. And so they were an interesting group of people. We don't know exactly where they were from, but what we knew is they were very familiar with passages in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, that talked about a king that would come. And just as a side note, you say, where would those passages be? Well, it could have been in Numbers chapter 25, for instance. Numbers chapter, excuse me, chapter 24. Uh, This is a comment that's made in the middle of a prophecy in Numbers chapter 24. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. You see, there in Numbers 24 is this interesting little comment that one day a king, the scepter, will come out of Israel and it will have a star. Now, what's really incredible about this is that in Numbers chapter 24, this prophecy is coming on the lips of a man named Balaam. Now, some of you Bible nerds know who Balaam is. Balaam was a prophet for hire, a pagan prophet for hire, who was hired to curse the people of Israel. Now, I know some of you have been with your family a little too long, and you would be happy to pay someone to curse uh, the people that you've been hanging out with, but it is probably not a good idea. It didn't work out in this situation. Balaam was hired to curse the people of Israel, but instead the Spirit of God caused him to bless the people of Israel. And part of that blessing was this very interesting prophecy about a star that would arise that would signify a king. And so how about that? These pagan you know, astrologers, scientists from another country were familiar with the prophecy of a pagan prophet about a king who would come. And so off they come to Israel. So those are basically the two academic things we want to get out of the way. Now let's get to the meat of this text. How is the gift of Christmas reacted to in our story? Now there are at least three reactions that I want to look at briefly here this morning. The first reaction that we see is indifference. Here are called in the story 
that there was this group of people that here are called scribes, right? And they are the ones who know the Bible well enough to say here in verse uh, 5 and 6, they, those scribes, uh, they told Herod that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people of Israel. They were able to pull up Micah 5.2 just like that. Now, I don't know about you, but I probably could not pull up much of anything from the book of Micah, and it's my job, just like it was a scribe's job. But they knew, oh, yeah, if you're looking for a king that would be born that was prophesied about, you need to head to Bethlehem because the prophecy says that's where he's going to be born. But I want you to notice something about this story. The scribes didn't head to Bethlehem. They weren't interested or even curious enough to make the four to six mile hike, which I don't know about you, but for me, that would take about an hour and 15 minutes, you know, at a reasonably slow speed, you know, they didn't feel like walking an hour and 15 minutes to see if in fact a child had been born that fulfilled the very words that they held as precious and that pretty much occupied all of their time. It reminds me of so many Christmases when my kids were little. I don't know that this happened to anybody today, but when my kids were little, it would not be uncommon that on Christmas Day, they would get some great present that would lie neglected somewhere back behind the Christmas tree while they played inside the box that it came in, right? Who, who knew that Amazon, empty Amazon boxes were the best Christmas present for small children ever, right? You know, and, uh, and it often happens. That, that toy that you looked all over town for ends up just sitting there unplayed with, unattended, you know, while something else draws our attention. For these scribes, that's the way the gift of Christmas was. It lied neglected. There was no... Interest. Now, I, I bring these guys up first because I think there's something helpful in that for those of us in this room who love the Word of God. You see, sometimes we can make the Word of God an academic exercise instead of making it what it actually is, the living, breathing Word of God. And instead of allowing the Word of God to lead us to a deeper and more wonderful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Instead, we allow it to simply remain in our mind, not work itself out in our lives. We forget that the point of this book is to lead us in a relationship. While we may not be asked to walk four to six miles for that relationship, we do have to assert ourselves through faith by believing and applying this word to our life. And you know what? It's Christmas morning. All day you'll have the opportunity to apply words and truths from this book into your life in the way we treat one another, speak to one another, in the way we think, you know, in the way that we talk on this day. Will we neglect the gift of Jesus on this day by our words and actions, or will we actually in faith, move toward him. But of course, there is a second person who uh, misses the gift, but he does not simply neglect 
the gift, he refuses the gift. And of course, that's Herod. Here we see Herod sounds very interested in this child, doesn't he? Oh, he's very interested. He wants to know where this child was born. He tells the Magi, look, when you find him, come back and tell me, because of course I want to go and worship him. But what we know is Herod has no interest in appreciating the gift of Christmas. He is looking for information simply to eliminate the gift of Christmas. Now we know this because later in the story, when the wise men go a a different route, we find that Herod is so upset about the idea of a king of the Jews being born that he has a horrible, horrible story. Of course, it's not necessarily out of character for a Herod who's killed members of his own family to make sure that he holds on to power, which is so precious to him. You see, in Herod, while he is an extreme example, without a doubt, we see one of the reactions to the gift of Christmas. Many people respond to Jesus not as a welcome gift that they are glad for and appreciate, but see him as an intrusion and a possible competitor for the unquestioned rule of their own lives. I remember uh, years ago a precious woman in my church in Florida who just kind of hung out and was part of everything that we did for years. And over and over, I would share with her the good news about how even though we are all sinners, that God loved us enough to send us the gift of Jesus Christ and that he lived a perfect life. And at the end of his life, he gave himself up on a cross. He paid the penalty on that cross for all that our sin deserves, and he rose from the dead on the third day. And I was explaining this good news to her again and inviting her to believe, to trust, to rest in this gift that God had given. And I loved it. She looked at me and she said, Chris, I don't know why you keep telling me that same story. I know the gospel. I simply don't want to give up control of my life. Now, she did eventually give up control of her life and has been a happy follower of Jesus for many years yet. But I still remember how much I appreciated the the self-conscious honesty that she knew that Jesus was a great gift, but she didn't want it because she knew it would conflict with her illusion of control in her life. And you know, many of us are like that today. While we may not be as violent as Herod, we hear about the gift of Jesus and we want to keep him as far at arm's length as absolutely possible. And maybe some of us sitting here today are like that. But isn't Christmas a good idea, a good day to examine that gift a little bit more closely, to see who he is and to see the peace with God that he offers, to see the opportunity to enjoy relationship with him, and to bring that gift closer rather than keeping it pushed away. But lastly, of course, we see those who truly embrace the gift, and that is these magi. Now, just as another side note, because, you know, what else do preachers do other than uh, try to burst common misconceptions about the story? Nowhere does it say there were three of them. Now, I know, I know. I like that song as much as the next guy. We three kings of Orient are, right? 
Yeah, that just, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. It's, uh, you know, I, I love that song. But we don't know. I mean, people, people assume that, you know, because, of course, there were three gifts. But we don't know that there were just three. They, they weren't kings. They were magi. We've already talked about that, uh, right? Really, there were just two gifts, just to mess with you a little bit more, right? There, you're like, wait a second, there's gold, there's frankincense, and there's myrrh, right? And you're right, but really, that's just one gift, they brought Jesus expensive stuff. Now, I know you've all heard, some of you have maybe even preached, I certainly have, sermons about the, the, the deep meaning of each of those gifts, but really the bottom line for Matthew is they gave him expensive stuff, right? Now, I don't know whether anybody got any gold today. Any gold out there today? Any gold recently? Any gold recently? Maybe. Come on, I'm talking right to you. Did we get any gold anytime recently? All right, I want to see it. Hold it out for me so I can see it. Beautiful. Congratulations. Anyway, it's... pastors know these things, right? We always love it. But it's an expensive present, isn't that right? <laughs> He's like, yeah, uh, yeah. There is one very happy girl in this room, and there is one very broke boy, right? And that's the way it goes. And so there are these expensive presents. That's gift number one. But I want you to see the real, the real reaction to the gift of Jesus is the second present they give, and that's worship. Notice that? And going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Now, of course, that word worship can mean honor or homage. And if they believed him to be a king, it would be appropriate and so whether or not in their mind they were thinking, you know, uh, we are honoring him as God's son, I don't know. But I do know that Matthew, by writing this story and by saying that they worshiped him, he has a clear intention. And that is for those of us who read this passage to understand that is the appropriate reaction to the gift. The appropriate reaction is to worship. And that's what we've been doing this morning. That's what we did last night. We have been worshiping him. What does that word worshiping mean? Well, ultimately, worship is assigning worth to something, acknowledging its value. And truthfully, we worship all kinds of things, don't we? Right? I was just talking to a young lady last night that was here in town visiting her parents and and she told me that she went to Texas A&M University. That's where uh, that, 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 they brainwashed them very early on in the experience that whoop is an appropriate reaction. I, I received that and accept that. Uh, but there on the college campus of Texas A&M University, I know because I've been there a few times, there is a giant monument to American football. I say that for all you soccer fans out there. Uh, and there's a monument there. It's called Cow Field. It seats 108,000 people. 108,000 people. And I have been there on a Saturday afternoon when the Texas A&M Aggies were playing somebody else. And I can tell you that there is worship going on there. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not it goes on a lot of different places. It's going to go on about the Denver Broncos probably later today, or I don't know, are they playing later today, or have they already given up? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, anyway, I, I think that they're mostly given up, right? Okay, anyway. So when you're there, as a matter of fact, one thing I love about Texas A&M is they're just upfront about the worship aspect of it because the night before they have worship practice, it's called yell practice, and they all show up about midnight in the stadium so they can practice all of the hymns that they plan on singing uh, to the team the next day. I'm not lying. This is the way it works, and I at least appreciate the honesty of it, right? You know, so many of us, though, are assigning worth and value to things without us even consciously thinking about it, you know, but we do it all the time. Today, many of you will have a wonderful meal, and you will say, wow, that was incredible, and you will extol praise. You will assign worth to that great meal, and that's okay. But the question is, what gets our ultimate assignment of worth and value? Is it the gift of Christmas? At the end of the day, do all of those other fine, fun gifts of God pale in comparison to the extreme and ultimate value of Jesus Christ, the gift of Christmas? You can see it should. Matthew says they came into the house and they worshipped Him as a pointer to each of us that if we understand who Jesus is, that He is God who's come in the flesh. We realize what He has done, that He has paid the penalty that our sins deserve, that we would fall down and we would assign ultimate value to I could get for Christmas or birthdays or at any point in my life that is more valuable than Jesus. Now, here's the rub. Does my life show that the gift of Christmas is the most valuable thing to me? Truthfully, not, not, not often enough. And that's why we have the opportunity to repent of making things more valuable than Him and believing again that He indeed is the greatest treasure in our life. I love it in the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew. He says the kingdom of heaven, which of course is most represented in Jesus Christ, is like a treasure It's hidden in a field. And when a man finds it, he buries it again. He goes and he sells all that he has that he might gain that field. Why? Because he's realized there is nothing that compares to the ultimate value of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. I pray this Christmas that you will be encouraged to respond with worship to the gift of Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness and goodness. It is a good thing to come out on Christmas morning and to reflect for a little while on the tremendous value of the gift of Christmas, even you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for humbling yourself, for coming into this world, for being born and placed in a manger. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect life and your perfect satisfaction of God's judgment on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being raised from the dead and sitting at the right hand of God the Father and interceding for us. Thank you, Jesus. May we enjoy you and value you today and always as more precious than any and everything in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.